couldn't take the mark. Oh, he's a light, Gary Ampler. Look at this. Here is the magician at work. He shoots towards goal. What more can you say? Hargraves kicks inside the 50, bounces in front of Burns, Burns magnificently, this deserves a goal, and he's got it. What a classic. Inboard, awkward kick by Colbert, half-half ball, 50-50, Riccardi brilliant, what a goal this will be, magic! Can't break free of the tackle, and Rook rolls it along the line, that is amazing! Steve Johnson, another one who the Cats will be hoping gets up today. Ooh, and again there's a turnover, and Edwards, the little genius, drives it home. It's the Cat's Whiskers. Hello, I'm Wes Cusworth. We welcome you to the Cat's Whiskers for another week. We hope you're enjoying our look back on players, officials and events from the Geelong Footy Club's past while also keeping our listeners abreast of the Cat's current form, not to mention our examination of broader AFL-related issues. It's terrific to have you listening, whether you're hearing us through any of a number of podcasting platforms or on Sport FM 91.3 in Perth. This week, our special guest is successful scribe and ardent Geelong supporter, James Button. But first, let's hear from the panel and some thoughts on Geelong's amazingly emphatic hammering of reigning Premier Richmond. Anthony Petkovic, welcome to you. Did we learn anything new in that Friday night victory against Richmond? Oh, we sure did, Wes. We learned that the Melbourne Comedy Festival is still on, judging by the Chris Scott press conference after the win. Either that or Elliot Goblet is coaching the Cats. Scott's deadpan one-man show was at its best with his quote, I would argue against the fact that we moved the ball faster, unquote, that had Cats fans rolling about on the floor of their lounge rooms. He followed up with the hysterical observation that we were pretty good last week, except for the execution. That's like saying Harold Holt was a damn good swimmer until he drowned. The bottom line is, supporters are okay with clubs telling porkies if they are in on the joke. But please, don't wee down our backs and tell us it's raining. Well, Anthony, I wonder what Mark Brunger has to say about that and uh, also about the same topic, that uh, success against the Tigers. Goodness gracious. Next week, can I go first, please, Wes? I can't (laughs) follow this anymore. Um, look, I I, um, I was um, absolutely gobsmacked with what I saw on Friday night. I uh, did not believe it in my wildest dreams that we would uh, that we would beat Richmond. Um, in fact, I'd been walking around saying to everyone that we might have got a bit of a pantsing from the Tigers. But uh, uh, you know what? That uh, that non quicker brand of football certainly looked very entertaining in the second half. I'll say that and. Uh, with the uh, the, the uh, three key forwards up there in uh, Hawkins, Cameron, and also uh, Gary Rowan doing their thing. Uh, Geelong looked practically unstoppable on Friday night in that second half and would have sent an ominous message to uh, most of the teams in the competition. I say most of the teams because uh, Richmond were missing a few big names in that particular game. And as I mentioned to some of my colleagues at uh, basketball the, uh, the following evening, uh, until we actually beat Richmond in a final, then uh, the monkey is not off the back just yet. So um, let's enjoy it. Let's not get too carried away with it, um, but enjoy it for what it was worth. And, and let's hope that we can we can do something similar to uh, St Kilda this week. And we did it without moving the ball any quicker, Mark. A, a miracle. Apparently it didn't move any quicker. I, I, I must have had my game on fast forward, I think, Anthony, because it was moving pretty darn quick on my TV. Look pretty quick to me, Mark. <laughs> now, Anthony, I know that you're a big 
Sam Simpson fan. And unfortunately, the young fella can't take a trick, can he? No, very bad news for uh, for Sam and for Geelong, I think, because he's a very useful player. But uh, he's got a few injury concerns. Um, but uh, we'll get him. We'll patch him up and get him back out there because there's definitely, I think, a, a spot for him in our best uh, twenty-two. What did uh, what did you guys make of the late change to Geelong side on Friday night with the big Asava Ratagalia coming into the side for uh, one of your favourite players at the moment, Anthony and uh, Reece Stanley? Look, Reece has to learn that the gap between his best and his worst, he has to bridge that gap. And uh, until he can do that, I don't think we can continue to trust him. So you had to see what Sav could do there like we have to see what Darcy Fort can do there. We can always go back to Reese, but uh, the performance against Sydney was unacceptable. Well, lads, we've got a very special guest coming up and I'm really looking forward. I'm sure you will enjoy hearing from a man that has got an extensive knowledge of the Geelong Football Club history uh, throughout the decades. Uh, He's not too much older than you and I, Anthony, um, we'll just cut Mark a few extra years because he's just the uh, he's the younger member of the panel tonight. But baby of the family, he is. Yes. Coming up is James Button. Welcome back to the Cats Whiskers. Our guest for the sixth episode of season 2021 is acclaimed writer James Button. Not just a writer, James is an editor, policy communications advisor and former journalist based in Melbourne. He's worked for The Age, the Grattan Institute and as a speechwriter for former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd. He's won three Walkley Awards for feature writing and written two books, Speechless, A Year in My Father's Business and most significantly to us at the Cat's Whiskers, Come Back, The Fall and Rise of Geelong. James, welcome to the Cat's Whiskers. Thanks, Wes. And... G'day, fellas. I'm very excited to be here. and really look forward to the conversation. James, I'm interested to know, given that your father, John, was such a passionate Geelong supporter, was there any option for you to go elsewhere as a child? Absolutely none, Anthony. But I, look, I'll tell you, I actually um, went to primary school. We lived in Hawthorne and West Hawthorne. I went to West Hawthorne Primary School. And everybody there buried for Richmond. And so when I started um, following footy, you know, a bit, a bit half and half when I was six, um, I started barring for Richmond. But I remember one day I was, uh, my dad was driving me to school. I was probably about seven. And we got in the car and I said, dad, who do you follow in the footy? And he said, Geelong. And I said, me too. <laughs> and, you know, I, I guess a fan was born and, you know, pretty much bound at that point. You know, after that, there was, there was no choice. James, I, I did a little bit of research today and, and I really uh, clicked with a line um, of one of the, the, um, the comments on, on your book and that was, um, as the years wore on and the defeats and disappointment mounted, it became clear to you that his team would never win a flag. Well, I've got to tell you, there was a lot of cold Saturdays spent at Kidinia Park and uh, I felt that same pang that I might not ever see... Uh, uh, my team win a premiership. So I can only imagine how excited you were in 2007 when we, we finally broke through for that uh, long-awaited uh, I think excited is not quite the word. <laughs> you know, but but um, look, I, I think so many of us, didn't we? We just thought, you know, this this team, this club is never going to do it. Um, I, I actually got to a point where I thought that it was something about Geelong, the town, just being too small too sort of marginal to, you know, Australian life, to perhaps not quick enough to pick up the latest techniques that other clubs, especially when we became a national competition, right? Uh, Then big powerhouse clubs coming in from South Australia, WA, you know, um, the AFL supporting clubs like Brisbane, giving them big, big leg ups. You know, but Geelong was just gonna be forgotten in that, you know, this country town on the fringe of Melbourne. And so, you know, around the, Late 90s, I think that feeling became really pronounced that, you know, we just, we were going down now. Um, you know, we were becoming a, a national competition and Geelong was just just not going to cut it. And that's not what happened. So, yeah. so it has a particular, um, a particular pleasure, I think, for Cats fans because I, I feel that a lot of Geelong people, including many people from Geelong, just felt that. 
you know, but it was that we were just, you know, the old cliche, Sleepy Hollow. And, and, and that that town, the nature of the town played in the team. You know, that's what I was trying to get at in my book, that the, that the psyche and the fortunes of the town and the team just can't be separated. Yeah. And James, you've given that expression of seeing the 90s start and things not quite develop for us as we would have liked and maybe that um, sort of deep-seated notion really starting to consolidate. But take us right back to your very first memories of some of the players that you saw in action and some of the great experiences like were you making that dash from the gates to those three park benches there at Kidinia Park on the Murrable Street side of the ground like Anthony and Mark and I were? Yeah absolutely Wes and I have one uh, one name for you above all Doug Wade. <laughs> I, I was a huge Doug Wade fan although Although I got to tell you, I was devastated to hear one day that he was running for the country party in, in an election because I'm a Labor person, and and he was running he was running as a candidate. But his uncle had been actually a minister in in the Menzies government. He'd been health minister for a while, which I, I hadn't known. But uh, he, I've, I interviewed Doug for my book, and he's he's a lovely bloke. Um, but I just thought he was the best footballer. I, I love the way I, I you know it's funny the things you remember in footy. My first game down at Cadenia Park was the round 20. You know, when you're a kid, you remember everything. It was mm-hmm. round 20, 1970. We were playing South Melbourne, who were, for the first time in since 1945, they had a chance to make the, the four, as it was then. And the winner of this Geelong South game would go into the four. And I think we lost by about 10 points. And we had a great first quarter. And I was literally on one of those benches sitting behind Doug Wade. And the thing that struck me most was there was a moment where he was just standing there with his arms on his hips. And he turned around to look at the crowd. He kicked a goal already in the first few minutes. And I just thought, oh, my God, he's a human being. (laughs) And like he just turned and looked at us for a minute. He didn't see us, but he just gazed vacantly at the crowd and you know it was just you remember that sense of football when you're a kid that everything is etched in your memory so powerfully you know the crowd the um the play you know the the just that and and because we were sitting behind the goal you get that drama of the goal mouth you know that most of the time it's quiet and suddenly there's this furious activity Wadey's leading down the ground he's marked it he's kicked the goal we're all banging on the, you know, on, on, on the front and everything. So I remember that day very, very well. But there weren't many happy days in those days because after 1970, we fell off a cliff for quite a long time. As, as Indeed, well. James, I was interested to ask about the, the 70s. Your book touches on it uh, in quite some detail. Um, and, and in my household, being, uh, being fed or being able to speak above a whisper depended on a Geelong victory. Um, there weren't many to be had in that particular period, even though we had many fine individual players, the Nankervis brothers, John Newman, Kenny Newell and Wayne Kloster. Um, but it never seemed to come together. Yeah, so a lot, I think a lot was going on there, Anthony, wasn't there? I mean, we had been great at when we relied on the Western District for our players. You know, in the, that 60s premiership side in particular, had so, you know John Devine, the Lord Brothers, um, you know they they came from that Western District area and had been such a rich um, breeding ground of players for Geelong, and Geelong was slow. You know in the 1966-67 they introduced zoning, and we didn't we expected to get the Western District and we didn't get it. We got um, we got up north of Victoria, up on the Murray. Maybe not first. Maybe we got somewhere else first, but we ended up there. And we were very slow to, um, they admit, the older players around, uh, you know, committee people around the, the club admitted they'd become complacent and they just didn't use the zone very well. Some, you know, Hawthorne got so much out of their zone. I think North Melbourne did well out of their zone later. Um, you know, some clubs were really good at working their zone. We, we were not. Um, later on, we got some good players from there, but but not, not initially. And then I think there was another... Another thing that's really interesting is that the Geelong economy falls off a cliff in the mid-1970s and all those factories close. And, you know, it's a moment of a quite significant moment in Geelong because um, migration to Geelong stops. You know, the town doesn't grow as much. Ford goes from 5,000 workers to 1,500 um, in the 80s. 
international harvester uh, goes, you know, it's just a bad time. And if you look at those 50s and 60s, uh, great sides at Geelong, they had money, you know, they had money to go over to WA and get Polly Farmer. They had money to get Dennis Marshall, you know, you know, Bob Davis getting in the car, you know, and uh, driving to, you know, it's like something out of And the Big Men Fly, you know, going to look for a recruit in the country and, you know, money going under the table, over the table, whatever you needed was there. Geelong just couldn't do that anymore. And they just didn't cope very well with the modern, with the modern period, I think. And, and, and that just, I guess, coming back to my first point, that really reinforced my sense that um, this town, which was a kind of town of combination of well-to-do people and working class people, you know, but it didn't have the right sort of chemistry and modernity, if you like, to really, to really cut it. And, and that, you know, I think that for me came, came through very, very strongly in that 70s period that you're talking about, Anthony, you know. And in that, in that 70s into the 80s period and, and, and to the mid 80s, uh, the Geelong Football Club really struggled. And last week we, we talked about the, the passing of Frank Coster and, and how Frank, um, you know, pretty much saved the club from, from going under or at least being a Melbourne-based club. Um, is, that, is, that, um, is that the most significant period in the entire history of the Geelong Football Club, do you think? Oh, I think it's got to be... It's got to be, Mark. Just a point on Frank. I think we should give Ron Hovey some credit for there been terrible infighting in the Geelong committee, like just unbelievable. Because, of course, to be president of the Geelong Footy Club in a small town was to be king of Geelong, basically. And, you know, people would just walk over each other's bodies in that 70s and 80s period to... Um, to be president and they'd form allegiances with players and they'd go behind the back of the coaches and they'd say, you know, I can make this better. You know, you should be captain. And, you know, it spilled, definitely spilled into the playing group as well, that politics. When, now, when Hovey, Ron Hovey became president, all that infighting stopped. And, you know, we, so we have a, you know, relatively stable period during that time when we make those grand finals, you know. Um, but, you know, Hobie said to, to Frank Costa, I'm not the guy to take us forward from here. Um, we want you to do it. And, and you know, Frank, um, you know, the, really his arrival, his ability to pull Geelong behind Brian Cook, I, I think it's their relationship, the relationship between Frank Costa and Brian Cook that's so significant for the fortunes of the club because Cook was from the outside. He was doing tough things. He was doing things that needed to be done down at Geelong, cleaning the place out, getting rid of dead wood off the field and on the field. Um, although he wasn't obviously interfering so much on the footy side, but he was really trying to modernise the club. And, you know, he could have gone under at that time. Costa backed him there. And, and Costa's backing, their relationship, I think, is, is very significant. What other things do you see as... Uh being instrumental in our success throughout 89, 92, 94, 95, where we at least made grand finals and were obviously uh, an even bet, so to speak, heading into those big games. I mean, apart from the fact that we had some superstar players like Gary Senior. Well, you've got to give a lot of credit to Malcolm Blight, I think. Um, I, you know, he, you just look at his win rate compared to the coaches before him, it, it goes up from like 46% of wins to 62 in that period. Um, he, uh, Damien Drum said something interesting to me. He said that before Blight, you basically the coaches down at Geelong were the rev them up and roar them out. You know, they beat us last time. You know, we need the four points. Let's show them how much we hate them. You know, that kind of just just revving them up that way. And whereas Blight would say, you know, this, this guy, he can only quick on his left foot, so you, you need to force him to the boundary on his right side. You know. Um, this guy, the ball always falls short. You know, we need to do, you know, there was real tactics and strategy introduced by Blight for the first time. Yeah. And really, it's a, it was a kind of incredible marriage, you know, really, Malcolm Blight and the Cats. You know, Blight, the swashbuckling coach, you know, the footballer who won a game of his own boot after the siren, you know, with a 70-metre torp in the rain at, at um, you know, and then the guy runs into goal and misses. You know, just an absolutely captivating footballer himself, a brilliant footballer. Um, coming down to a club that was always, that just loves skill, you know, that loves skill and flair. And, 
So, so I think I've thought a lot about the, the blight period and I've kept thinking about it after I finished my book. And I really think the one that got away from us was 1993. That was the year Blight did not talk to the players after the grand final. So they've, they've lost the grand final in 1992 and Blight leaves the ground. He doesn't even talk, he doesn't talk to the players and he doesn't talk to them for six weeks. And he doesn't talk to them till the best and fairest. It's, it's sometime after the grand final. By this stage, the players are absolutely ropeable. And Blight does some serious thinking over the summer and he comes back and he realises that the mids in particular, the midfield, the Bearstow couch, those sort of players have got to get more defensive and, you know, they've got to run back the other way. And so he, he was thinking the right things, but I think he'd lost the players. And, you know, 93 was the year that the freakish Gary Ablett year when he kicked a hundred and... 23 can someone help me here but it, you know we it was the year that the season was cut back by two rounds we mm-hmm. you know we 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 stormed home we won our last seven games and before storming home blight um got about eight of the players in a room and said just what am i doing wrong you know have at me just go at me and he as he said to me they didn't miss you know they Darcy, Tim Darcy said you've cost us the season Steve Hocking paid out on him every you know and he said right from now on, you guys, just go and play your game the way you want to play it, you know. And I actually saw him in the rooms against Collingwood. He made this really inspirational speech, you know. It was, it was fantastic out at Waverley. And, and I think just the, um, the... I think Blight had got to the point where his thinking was right, but he had been... His response to the 92 loss had been so um, furious that I, I think, you know, he lost the players there. And I think, you know, Tim Watson said Geelong was the best side in the comp that year. Essendon won the, won the flag. And they weren't, they were a young team, you know. So, I don't know. I, it's always, you know, it's the, it's the world of ifs, right? <laughs> but that's, that's, that's what footy's about, ifs, isn't it? You know? yeah. James, <laughs> one, of the, uh, one of the characters I thought your book uh, captured almost perfectly um, was Bill Goggin. Um, oh. a, great, a great servant of the club, a wonderful player. Uh, captain, Victorian captain, state representative, that wonderful uh, relationship with Polly Farmer. Mm. Um, and, of course, uh, as a coach, um, that, so that great, that great character and contribution, but he was also a bit of a Machiavellian-type character who couldn't help himself be involved in things that coaches probably shouldn't be involved in. Yeah, Billy got very involved in the politics of the club, Anthony, you know, and... It comes back to my point about the, there was so much politics in the in the Geelong Footy Club, and uh, that time, of course, and Billy was very um, secretive and mistrustful. He didn't, um, and he thought it was a, you know, he thought it was a posh club, and he was a working class boy, and they didn't respect him. And I don't think that's true. I mean, you know, they'd made him coach, they'd made him captain, they loved Billy Goggin, you know, but Billy had, I think, that chip on his shoulder to some extent, and. Um, now, the side bottom incident really comes out of that suspicion that somebody in the club was leaking to Collingwood. And so we can't tell, it, tell people, and they ended up not telling the, oh, yeah. Gary, Gary Sidebottom that he was going, that yeah. he was playing, you know, the ifs, the terrible ifs, you know. And um, so, you know, I, I think that, uh, but look, you know, um, Billy, I think uh, he's, um, you know, this is all a long time ago. He was an incredible footballer. So, so brave and, and, you know, wonderful, wonderful player for Geelong. And, you know, uh, it's just a pity that I think politics just got in the way at Geelong so much in that period. James, one of the, the things I was interested in in um, the, the book that, that you wrote, Comeback, um, and you've talked a little bit about the politics that were going on at the club, and it's, this is something that I've always heard that, um, you know, has been mentioned in my family over the years with a couple of uh, members of my family who have been very good footballers in the in the 50s, uh, 50s and 60s. Um, and it's about the, the class divisions that, that really um, um, sort of reared their head at the Geelong Football Club over many years, you know, whether it be Catholic or Protestant or whether you be, uh, you know, a private school boy or whether you be a public school boy. And, and th- this was appeared to be quite common back in the, the 50s and 60s. Yeah, Mark, I think it's true. Um, 
but that was Australia in those days as well. You know, I mean, we forget. I, I, I think in Australia, you know, the arrival of migrants in large numbers really scrambled the class scene. People forget before that the big conflict in white Australia was between Catholics and Protestants. You know, that that was the mate. That was just like totally defining, and it was uh, Geelong. Um, uh, you know, strong Catholic town. I, I, by the way, I don't believe that there was a Catholic conspiracy at Geelong. I, I, I did a lot of work and, and talking to people on this. Um, there's a guy called Les Burrick who played for Geelong in the early 50s. And um, he, uh, he, you know, Les is a Protestant. He said, look, there was nothing in this. You know, he said there just wasn't anything in it. It was a kind... I actually think that people who say that there was a Catholic domination are really living out that old Catholic Protestant, you know, um, uh, divide. You know, there's just no evidence that a coach like Reg Hickey, um, who was the one who's always blamed for this, um, would pick any any team but his best team, you know, whether they're Catholic or Protestant. Now, of course, all this comes up because Reg dropped George Ganinen um, in 1953, um, uh, but for the grand final. I think he'd also, he didn't play in the preliminary either, whereas he kicked a lot of goals in the 1952 finals. He dropped him because George was seen out in Geelong with a woman who wasn't his wife. Um, well, George uh, ended up marrying that, that woman that he was out with. But um, George was somebody who over the years said there was a big Catholic Protestant thing down there, and this was evidence of it. But, but if you look at the match reports, actually, the papers were saying that Ganinen was playing very badly at the time, you know, so. I don't know what, how much, I don't believe that's really what was, you know, the, what was behind that. It might have been some, you know, sort of, uh, um, what's the word, um, prudishness on the part of Hickey, but I don't, I don't believe it was a Catholic Protestant thing. We're speaking with James Button, the author of Comeback, The Fall and Rise of Geelong on the Cat's Whiskers. And our program extends all the way over to Perth where our Sport FM listeners love to hear about uh, particularly um, their homegrown talent. Tell us about the impact a little further. I know you've, you've started talking about Brian Cook, but um, just the impact that he has had because it appears to be drawing to a close and uh, we'll talk later in the program amongst ourselves as to um, who we might ha- actually have as serious contenders for that. But obviously his the extent of his influence has been absolutely enormous. Yes, it has, uh, Wes. And obviously getting the finances um, right was the most critical thing at the start. The club was, um, you know, on the, on the verge of going out the back door because of, of their, mon- their money situation. Um, I think also um, cleaning up, uh, you know, just basically creating a... Um, a professional outfit um, off the field around the club. Um, the relationship with Costa is very important. And then, of course, doing the review in 2006, um, which, was, which was so important. And that review, I really think, is the, uh, is the trigger to, to what happens, everything that happens after that. We all know the story. 2006 had been a terrible year for the club. They were unfit. Um, they got a bit cocky after a couple of years in the finals. Uh, Shannon Burns, uh, one of the players, said to me, we just thought it was going to roll on and on and on after that. And, of course, it didn't. Um, they had a terrible year in 2006, a bit like Richmond had a terrible year before their, their premiership run started. And that sometimes, you know, failure can be a great teacher. And that, that review, um, you know, has a couple of key uh, impacts. One is that Tom Harley is appointed captain out of that review. And again, a new thing for Geelong, a club that had always picked its best players or its most um, uh, popular players um, as captain. And I think one of the fascinating things about the footy club after um, 2007 um, and leading up to that is that it starts to become a club that can um, that can manage a whole bunch of different types of players by, pers- by types, I mean personalities. So very shy players like um, Joel Corey and Max Rook um, suddenly have a role in the leadership group for the first time. That wouldn't have happened in Geelong back in the day, I don't think. And so the, the kind of sense of a hierarchical players where some players were in and some people were not, that really started to change. And of course, the leading team, leading teams coming, Jared Healy coming with leading teams. 
that has a big uh, impact because it allows players like um, Max Rook and Joel Corey to actually start playing a role. And as Joel said to me for the book, you know, that there are different, that Jared Healy said to him, there are different ways to be a leader. Joel said, when I grew up, my idea of a leader was someone who stood up and shouted and said, this is you, you follow me, this is the way to go. And Healy said to him, you know, you can be a leader just by being quiet, working with some of the younger players, playing your role, doing your things courageously every week, that can be a way to lead. So suddenly the club just starts to get a whole lot smarter on the field in a whole lot of ways. And, and, and I think that really comes out of that, that period of the review. And the, the last thing with Cookie, of course, is, and again, and there's credit to Frank Costa here as well, and, and, to, and to others, is the building of the stands and the, and the Geelong ground, um, you know, and Geelong really cementing its place where it should be, which is right in Geelong, nowhere else. James, you can't mention Brian Cook and Frank Costa. There's a third party there, Bomber Thompson. Um, at, at what point did the whole Bomber Thompson um, persona start to unravel? Was it with the review? Was it with the success that followed? Or was there some other element that led to... Um, his personal downfall? It's a really interesting question, Anthony. I obviously had a terrible year in 06. Um, his marriage broke up. Um, uh, the review, um, I think the review played the positive role of taking a lot of the pressure off him so he could focus on coaching. Um, and, you know, Bomb is such an enigma because the players loved him. It's really, you know, and I, I think especially in those early years, he was just, just a wonderful coach for a lot of those players coming through. And I, you must have experienced this as a fan. I love the way that he would defend his players when we'd been smashed. You know, I just thought that was fantastic. And, um, you know, he really had the loyalty of those, of those players who all, of course, grew up together, you know, at the club. And I was really struck just doing a lot of interviews, just how much loyalty the you know the and and strong feeling there was for bomber but not all uh not not all players but many 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 of them as to his own personal state like i really i really don't know i i know that um you know by the end of 2010 he was done you know i think he was really over over it uh he said to me i should never have gone back to Essendon. big mistake you know he was sort of over footy I, you know, what a what a job being an AFL coach, eh? You know, like just the the pressure. I mean, we think there's pressure in politics, but I think it's arguably worse being a coach because people are more invested in footy in this country than they are in politics, you know? And if you lose, it's just, you know, you're just hated up and down, you know, up and down the area where your club is from, you know? So I, I think um, 10 years of coaching had pretty much done bom- bomber in frankly, you know, and he was obviously, he had personal issues that were very, you know, that, that, were, that were hard for him to deal with. But I, but I really think his legacy at Geelong is just immense, you know, and um, he, he, he deserves so much credit for, for what, the, um, what the club became. But see, what's really interesting about it is as the club starts to experience success, there's no one person anymore who's responsible. You know, there's many centres of great activity going on, you know. Well, and there was. There was uh, Neil Baum, Ronnie Watt, Ken Ronnie, Ron Brendan Watt, McCartney. Yep, absolutely. Stephen Hawking, you know, there's so many, so many of them in that time. And they started to, you know, they started to take risks with things. You know, Travis Varco wanted to run a program for Indigenous kids. You know, they said, well, let's try that. Let's give it a go. You know, they were, they were just doing stuff. You know, they were doing programs... You know, they were um, they were doing a lot of stuff out in the Geelong community in that time. You know, I think it was a it was a very sort of rich and creative period. You know, one story that always sticks with me about that 07 year um, is that they played some they played Sydney when they're on that winning streak. They played Sydney and they'd beaten Sydney, but Sydney the Sydney midfield had given them our midfield a bit of a hiding. And on the Monday meeting, um, they said. You know, they didn't know the midfield wasn't criticized. They said, isn't it wonderful? Look at how our midfield, even though the Sydney midfielders are streaming out, our midfield goes after them and and just pressures them. And look how many times their kicks 
go to one of our defenders. You know, it was a great lesson for me at footy that even when you're getting beaten, you can still do something like harass the guy who's running out with the ball and, and make sure his kick is, is not as, as, you know, as neat and straight as it, as it could be. You know, and so that, the, the sense of encouragement and that they were actually doing something together. I, I, you know, I really do think, not using this word lightly, I think something magic happened down there where, where they really did you know, strip away their egos and were just so deeply invested as a team. Even some of the players who didn't like each other off the field were just completely bonded on the field. James, uh, on a slightly lighter note, uh, part of your career involved being a a European correspondent for The Age. Uh, Just tell us about uh, the difficulties of being a a rabid football fan of AFL football being outside of Australia. How how tough a task is that? Yeah, well, Mark, in those days, the internet wasn't as, um, as, uh, you know, um, as accessible, you know, as this is in the mid-2000s. I don't... I remember um, I bought a package for the 05 season of games were sent to me via CD. <laughs> but these, you know, I'd get the CDs three weeks after the game and in the meantime, they'd won two or lost two and I didn't really care anymore. You know, um, but what I did do though, Mark, was in 07, I, I flew home from London for the grand final and because I kind of figured that... Uh, on my deathbed, I wouldn't be saying, gee, I'm glad I saved those 2000 bucks. <laughs> so, and of course, that's the best $2,000 I ever spent in my life. And uh, so, look, I, I got there for the, for the big game and I had watched the finals of that year. Um, that somehow, I'd, I'd managed to get a TV station where I could see them. So, I'd seen all the finals. I'd watched with my absolute heart in my mouth as I just got over Collingwood in the preliminary. Um, Still remember this guy, Matthew Stokes. I'd never heard of him and he was kicking goals, you know, all over the place in the first quarter. And so, so it was strange. I got quite invested in Arsenal. We were living near the Arsenal ground, Mark, and we'd sort of, we'd gone a bit, you know, a bit British really. And we'd been there for so long. The kids had English accents and, uh, you know, you know, it was really, uh, I'd become very, um, very interested in, in English football, English soccer. So there was a kind of, I, I, I'm not at all saying that I drifted away. I didn't, but I, but I, you know, I was juggling those two, those two different football codes at the time. Yeah. Yeah. James, obviously your knowledge, your recollection of events and everything is absolutely fantastic. It's so extensive. We really value that. And hearing some of your stories, it's, it's wonderful. Some of your insights. Are you a collector of Geelong football club memorabilia, for example, or anything like that? Tell us a bit about that. Tell us about that side of your life. No, I'm not Wes, actually. I, I'm, um, the, the reason I wrote that book, I guess, was I, was, I just did, didn't... It was such an important part of my life to, for us to win those three flags. And especially after the, the, the decades of uh, getting so close on a number of occasions and not winning. And I just wanted to understand it for myself, what had happened. And I thought that it hadn't been... Um, Scott Gallen wrote two good books on, on the Geelong flags. Um, but I... I felt there was more to say about what had happened down there and how it related to the lean years and how it related to the, the nature of, of Geelong, the town. So that's why I wrote the book. And, you know, my obsessiveness probably comes out of writing the book because it all sticks in your head. You know? mm-hmm. if, you, if you write a book, you, you realise that things become very kind of fixed in, in your mind. Um, but but I no I don't collect Geelong memorabilia. Um, I'm not Bob Gartland. <laughs> um, I, I've seen his incredible collection, uh, but I'm I'm not that myself. I I, I do though have um, I do have the 07, 09, 11 victory packs. <laughs> and yeah. I and, and lean years I go back to them very often. <laughs> um, but hopefully, James, you touched on before the um, the connection between football and politics. And of course, your, your father spent a lifetime in politics serving the, the Labor Party and the people of Australia and, and you being a speechwriter for Kevin Rudd. Um, can you understand um, how your father was able to spend such a, a commitment to politics given the, the cut and thrust of it? Yeah, footy, um, politics was... Um 
It's a really good question, Anthony. Look, he, you know, as a young man, he was pretty obsessed with politics. Um, and he actually comes from a family. His, his mum was from a um, Tasmanian family who were farmers there, and they were quite conservative. They, they would have been liberal voters. And his dad was, was a church minister, so, um, but he was English, his dad, so not interested in football. Um, but probably quite interested in politics, I think, in, in a sort of slightly centre-left way. Uh, it's quite common for, for children of church people, um, ministers to go into politics. It's quite a common path. And look, I, I just think he felt that Australia was, um, had been too complacent in the Menzies period and, and was just needed a big kick. And he got, he was very, um, and he'd been an, a, a, an industrial lawyer, so he'd worked with trade unions a lot. And, but I think, look, he, we suffered a, um, a personal, a, a, you know, very um, great tragedy in, in our family. My, my brother died when I was, um, when I was 21, just about to turn 21. And this was a, you know, intensely painful thing for my family. And I think it was, it was 10 months before my father was going to become a minister in the Hawke government. And when he became a minister, you know, it was really the, um, the peak of his, it should have been the peak of his career when everything that he'd worked for for so long, Labor had been out of power. Apart from the Whitlam years, they'd been out of power for so long. Now they were in power and he just couldn't enjoy it really, I don't think. Um, in the same, in, you know, he, he's, he was there for 10 more years. He was a minister in that time and, and I think he, he did his job very well. But I, I don't think he had the same pleasure in politics after David, my, my brother, died. And and I think this brings us back to footy in a way, because I think football was a very big release for him. You know, like going to the footy was a way, I've got a, I've got a younger brother, Nick, and it was a way of kind of for us to very much bond as, a, as three men, you know, like just going to the footy together all the time. We never talked about anything else except... <laughs> what else is there to talk about? Well, exactly. You know, like I, was, I, I say in the book that, you know... Um, my brother and my father, they both went through divorces in that time and my father remarried. And we never talked about that. We just talked about football you know? and where we're going to win today, you know. And uh, so, you know, it was, a, it, was a, it was a big thing for us to f- going to footy together. And he, um, my father, uh, saw the 07 grand final. Um, he was there for that. Um, but he died the year after. So he, he, he didn't see... He saw one of the flags, which is great, but he didn't see just how you know how great that period was james i thought one of the uh, the great things um in your book was your your acknowledgement where you, you wrote i owe the idea for this book to my wife may who has little interest in football but wanted me to explain to people like her why it matters so much my question is has may picked up the uh, the afl bug does she support the football does she watch the football <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> but she's a very generous person. And so um, she, she, it was her idea. It really was her idea. I, I've actually been playing over 50s footy the last few years and um, she absolutely hates that, right? And just thinks it's the most stupid idea that an old, old man could be out there playing football. And so um, she was there when I mentioned the Malcolm Blight um, many years ago. She was there when Malcolm Blight kicked that goal after the she was with a boyfriend at the time. And I said to her, um, she was sitting in the stand. I said, oh, that's amazing. You're at one of the most amazing games, that Malcolm Blight game when he beat Carlton off the, with the last kick. What was it like seeing him kick that goal? And she said, I didn't see it. I was knitting. <laughs> 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 so, you know, she, zero interest. But happy for me to have the interest, although not to be out of the house every Friday and Saturday night, <laughs> every week. Oh, James, that's uh, that's great. Look, we've really enjoyed talking to you. It's, it's great to talk to a uh, to another person with such great, such great passion for the club we all love and and for your insights into the club. So uh, uh, may we uh, thank you very much for your generous time and uh, and look forward to uh, to maybe catching up again in the future for uh, for part two. It's a pleasure, Mark and Anthony and Wes. Thanks so much, guys. It's um... You're really asking a duck to jump into the pond to ask me to talk about the long footy club. Very, very happy to do that. So, uh, go cats! You know, let's let's go hope for a great, great year in 2021.
Hello, I'm Wes Cusworth. Welcome back to the Cat's Whiskers as I'm joined by Mark Brunger and Anthony Petkovic. Let's delve deeply into some of the issues in a broader AFL sense. Boys, what is going on with the teams that uh, wear black and white? The Koshi versus Eddie, well, fracker over the prison bars. Mark? Absolutely, absolutely unbelievable that this could be happening in this day and age. That, that you know, look, I don't know about you, Anthony and Wes, but... I don't see anything wrong with Port Adelaide wearing the prison bars at all. They don't bear much resemblance at all to the Collingwood Football Club Guernsey. And I think now that Eddie's gone, that that maybe we can come to some sort of common sense arrangement, even if it's just to allow them to wear it in the in the showdown or something like that. I mean, I personally, Anthony, don't see anything wrong with Port Adelaide wearing the prison bars. Absolutely not. Most of their supporters have been behind bars at some stage, so <laughs> why not the team? <laughs> I did. I did appreciate the fact that they did whip the uh, prison bars on to uh, to sing the club song uh, the other night. I thought that was a nice touch, and I reckon Eddie would have enjoyed that immensely. He was um, reveling it, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think the face went from red to purple um, and almost would have exploded. But uh, Eddie's no longer president, but it still seems like he is the official spokesperson for Collingwood still. Mm, and I think that's probably got a lot to do with the fact that um, the, the, the uh, football media don't quite know uh, what the new Collingwood president looks like, I don't think. <laughs> I think the media have still got Eddie on speed dial. Yes. Yeah, Eddie's quick to uh, quick to respond to any opportunity, isn't he? Really, he's um, he's never going to be too far away from a microphone. Reminds me of a couple of people that I know well. Now, the Geelong <laughs> Football Club, of course, in pursuit of a CEO. I know that we've thrown some names around before on a previous episode of the Cat's Whiskers, but tell me about some of the whispers that you're hearing over and above those that perhaps we've already mentioned. I, I did hear a whisper this week that. Uh a former Geelong Premiership captain who might be in the northern state uh, might be considering a return home. There's some reports that uh, Tom Harley may have been looking at uh, real estate in the um, in the Victorian area, so he may be looking at uh, coming home from Sydney and uh, and being the new CEO of, of Geelong. And the other interesting rumour I, I, I did hear the other day was that. Um, former uh, football manager Steve Hocking could be in the frame to, to return as CEO. Well, either of those appointments would be uh, very much welcome. Very, uh, two very astute candidates. And uh, it looks like that position is going to be hotting up in terms of uh, people who are being available. You know, maybe Josh Frydenberg, after delivering the uh, federal budget, might be looking for a, uh, a bigger challenge by coming to Geelong. Another another name that's been mentioned in dispatches, which I find interesting, um, is uh, the former CEO of Cricket Australia and James Sutherland is, is still being mentioned in dispatches as well. Yeah, so hopefully, uh, hopefully James sticks to other things, I hope. Well, let's not get confused. I'm sure it's Kevin Roberts that we really want to avoid coming down <laughs> and taking over the CEO's position of Geelong, not uh, his predecessor. And James probably didn't do such a bad job in by way of comparison? Oh, yes. There's always, you can always comparison on the way down. Absolutely. <laughs> now, uh, what about, without getting too political, of course, um, it's a bit, bit of politics um, in this week's episode, which is actually pretty interesting, isn't it? Political flavour. Loving it. Yes. Now, tell me about Carlton. And uh, I know Mark has some serious concerns over whether or not the heart of the very heart of the Carlton Football Club is being ripped out with the possibility of Cripps and McKay heading off. Yeah, look, it's, it's certainly on the cards. I mean, Patrick Cripps has been very strong in saying that, no, no, he's, he's planning on sticking around at Carlton and, and so on. I suppose the most immediate concern for me with Cripps is, is that, in my opinion, I think he is definitely playing injured. There is absolutely no doubt about that. And uh, the Carlton Football Club, by persevering in playing him, is possibly going to do more damage than good to the goose that could lay the golden eggs. The other problem they're going to have is Harry McKay, because with the season he's putting together at the moment, he is on the uh, the free agency market uh, as of the end of this year. And I think he's going to command a fairly high price, Anthony. 
Oh, look, certainly, Will. His stocks are on the way up, but he's still got a lot to do before he becomes steps into that elite bracket. But I think Carlton supporters have got to get a grip. Oh, the um, and some sections of the media. Carlton are probably right where they should be at the moment. They're on the rise. I've got no doubt about it. They're not that far away. I think the uh, the administration and the coaching panel know exactly where they are. Uh, I think the supporters have got to get a little bit real. Just lower the expectations slightly. I think Carlton are at the 2003-2004 stage Geelong were at. Um, before they became regular finalists. They're competitive, they're close, they're bridging the gap on the better sides, but they're just not quite good enough yet to win. We'll know when Carlton are ready, when Eddie Betts doesn't get a game, when uh, McGovern doesn't get a game, when Casbolt doesn't get a game. When those fellas don't get games, you'll know Carlton are ready. They're close, but they're not there yet. So supporters, just cool it. Mm. I still think I still think that they're uh, they've just come off the M80 ring road and it's st- stuck in the traffic jam at uh, Grieve Parade and and for our Perth listeners that's uh, probably the same as a uh, a traffic jam on the uh, Poly Farmer Expressway so uh, that's uh, a little uh, local reference for our uh, for our Perth listeners but I still think they're uh, they're stuck in a traffic jam and they're not going anywhere at the moment and lads uh, a club that a it clearly has things falling into place for them right now is the Melbourne Football Club. Are the Demons the real deal? Can they go all the way this year? Well, are Melbourne the real deal? Well, look, I want to say yes. I'm just not that sure. Melbourne Football Club have given us glimpses of this for a couple of decades now. Um, you know, under Ron Barassi, they were, what, 12 years into a five-year plan. Um, it never seemed to work out. They get tantalisingly close. They started the season brilliantly. I remember one year in the 70s, they won, they won nine of their first 10 games and still didn't make the finals. So anything can happen at Melbourne. The jury's still out. I'd like to think they're there. We'll wait and see. I think the thing with Melbourne is that they've been quite blessed with... Um, uh, with the injury side of things so far, they haven't really had a like a major injury. You, you, you get rid of them missing a, a significant block of games or a couple of those missing a significant block of games and then we'll see what they've got in the depth department because as we know, the key to winning a premiership is staying healthy and it's what your, your extra soldiers, your number, you know, your 25 to, to 35 on your list, what those soldiers are like. And can they stand up to uh, to to the rigours of AFL football? So they're going along all right at the moment, but all all it takes is a um a puncture at some stage along the road, and we might find out a little bit more about Melbourne before the end of the season. Terrific work! Thanks so much, guys. That concludes our program for this week. The Cat's Whiskers is accessible on a range of podcast platforms, along with being heard throughout Perth on Sport FM ninety one point three. On behalf of the entire team, I'm Wes Cusworth saying thanks for tuning in and we hope you can join us again next week.